I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to John chapter 14, please. John chapter 14. Mentioned last week that I like to, uh, most years, I think, either in September or January, I have done a series that reminds us of our of our mission statement and purpose uh, to try to uh, take opportunity to uh, make sure we're lined up the right way with what the scriptures teach. Uh, the fact is that um, once you start to assume things, then you begin to drift away from them. And so it's good to re-articulate uh, fundamental commitments of of the church, of Christ. And and so I mean, the way I teach it is that folks... Um, you know, when the longer you're in one place, uh, you can start to assume that everybody has heard you say uh, these kinds of things. And the fact is that, um, so like when you do them the first time you do them in like really full lengthy series, I mean, I've got a, a bunch of those back there that are like 20, 30 message kinds of series and, and you walk through it all. But the fact is that, um, at any given slice, you actually can have large chunks of the congregation that weren't here for that, right? So how many, I wasn't thinking about this, but how many of you have joined the church since 1999? Would you put your hand up? Okay, that's a lot of hands. How many since 2009? All right, still a lot of hands, all right, because that probably would loop in the same group, I guess, if you do it that way. Right, so that means everything I preached in the 90s, a bunch of you weren't around for. Right, so that was the first 10 years, and then the second 10 years, right, then the third 10 years. So so that's the point of it. It's, it's like you can think that people have heard you say these things, but actually they haven't. And, and this one I don't, don't want you to raise your hand on, but uh, sometimes people are there and don't hear it. Right. I mean, I and I, I say that. I mean, I sometimes I look back and go, I preached on that. I didn't realize that. Right. But I remember one of these times that really came clicked in me. I thought, why didn't I take? Why didn't I have anything about this in my classes? And then I go back and I pull out notes from a class, and there's actually notes in there from it. Like, so I actually sat in a lecture from a professor talking about the thing that I was wishing he had talked about. And he actually did. But I didn't remember it. Right? That, I mean, that's just reality. It's None of us have uh, an encyclopedic recall of everything we've ever heard. And sometimes uh, we heard it but didn't hear it. And sometimes we heard it wrong. Right? Sometimes, sometimes there's distortion between the speaker and the hearer. And so uh, redundancy gives us an opportunity to clarify those things and 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 make sure we're we're actually understanding them, right? So so it's good for us to do this kind of a thing and remind ourselves that we exist to honor God by making and maturing disciples who together are becoming like Jesus Christ. Our our uh, purpose to honor God, the process by which we do that, make and mature disciples, and the product that should be produced is believers who are like Christ. And if if we're actually seeing that accomplished, it is they are together becoming like Christ, not just individual 
spiritual maturity, but congregational spiritual maturity and faithfulness, that that would be God's will for us based on, say, Ephesians 4, which talks about the whole church growing up into him, right? It's not just about our personal spiritual growth. It's about the health of the body of believers as well. And then last week, I wanted to start zeroing in a little bit just on trying to get us to think about Christ-likeness again uh, in a way that perhaps sometimes we can shift away from, and that is that we can... We can think of Christ-likeness uh, exclusively in terms of being and not necessarily in terms of doing. And, and so we might shift it to character traits um, that, that we would look at, and, and we certainly would have some basis for this, right? Like the fruit of the Spirit would be a manifestation of Christ-likeness. But even then, we tend to sort of isolate those as traits in our lives and sometimes forget how much each of those would be displayed actually in relationships, for instance, how we respond to things. I mean, so gentleness, you would have a hard, hard time defining abstractly. It actually has to be evidenced in some way, right? I mean... Gentleness in a bubble doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Gentleness in reactions and responses and actions does. Right? Self-control has to translate into a life that way. So our tendency sometimes is just to sort of like look like a list of virtues. And I've just got this list of virtues. And if I incorporate these virtues into my life, then, then I'm like Christ. And, and not necessarily see that if we're genuinely like Christ, then we actually would be living like he lived, which was the text in 1 John 2 and verse 6 that, that I started this little mini-series with, right? If we abide in him, the one who says that he abides in him ought to walk even as he walked or a more uh, probably contemporary of saying should live like Jesus lived because that's what walk means there. It's not talking about, you know, your gait. It's talking about the conduct of your life. That the conduct of your life should be like he conducted his life. And so if we're going to ask, what does that, what does that look like? What does that mean? Probably the, I think the best way to answer it since it's John writing 1 John 2, 6, is actually go, hey, you know what? That same guy wrote a, go- a gospel that, that showed us how Jesus lived, right? He says, live like Jesus lived, so see my gospel, because that's how Jesus lived. And that's what we're starting to look at. We looked at the first part of it, uh, which, which I think was the aim of Christ's life, that he lived with a mission. John chapter 17, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. So the aim of Jesus' life was to honor his father by accomplishing the work the father gave him to do. And that was his mission. It was to do the work that he had been assigned by his father. In fact, 
he was so committed to that, he could say in John chapter four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The very thing that sustained his life was doing that will, right? So it wasn't just like a platitude, oh yes, my life's for your glory. He actually said the very thing that nourishes my life is to do the will of him who sent me. And ultimately that was rooted in uh, his motivation for the Father's glory, right? As he faced the culmination of the Father's will in going to the cross, he was deeply troubled about that. And he says, what should I say? Deliver me from this? For this purpose, I came into the world. And his next statement is, Father, glorify your name, right? I'm, I'm going to do the thing I was sent here to do. It's deeply troubling to my soul what lies ahead of me, but I'm doing this because I want your name to be glorified, right? So the, the thing that sustained him in the pursuit of the Father's will is the very thing that started him in that pursuit. Right? I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. I mean, I'm here to glorify you. And he comes down to where the really tough part of it is. And it's his commitment to God's glory that enables him to fulfill a very difficult assignment from God. Right? And, and I think that's really important for us to get it because so much of contemporary Christianity thinks that it exists for us, that, that, that God exists to make us happy, to serve us. And certainly, if, if, if the cost of my life is what the cost of doing God's will is, he wouldn't want me to do that. I mean, he wouldn't want me to do something foolish like, you know, take the gospel to people who might kill me. He, he wouldn't want me to do something foolish like stand up for his truth if it might cost me my job. I mean, he knows I have to provide for my family and he wants me to be t well taken care of. So, you know, surely he doesn't want me to do that. Right? And you could fill in the blank of where it might come to be troubling, disturbing for us to do the will of God, just like Jesus. And our heart should be just like Jesus. So what do I do now? Say, deliver me from this? No, I came for this purpose. I committed to Christ to, to serve him how would I pull out of that now? Right? How would I back away from that at this point? Father, glorify your name. And so, so the aim of our lives needs to be the same as the aim of Jesus, to honor God by accomplishing the work he's given us to do. In other words, we live life with a mission, which I think means we embrace Christ's mission as first place in our lives. I mean, the thing that, and I, I read this text, but I want to just 
make sure we get the connection. John 17, 18, and 20, 21. 17, 18, Jesus is describing it as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. Right? And then he gives it in forms of a command in John 20, 21. As the Father sent me, so send I you. So just like Jesus came to do the will of the Father, we have been sent to do the will of the Son, which is to carry out his commission. Because what he is doing right now, we know from the scripture, is building his church. So that's the thing that matters most in the life of a believer. Right? What is Jesus doing? And I've been commissioned to do his work. So the thing that should matter most to every follower of Jesus is actually the mission of Jesus Christ. It has to have first place so that everything else can find its proper place. It doesn't mean there are no other things that we're concerned about. It just means they all take their place subordinate to the mission of Jesus Christ. Right? Because if I put anything above it, then I actually am, I am undercutting my commitment to it. And I have to be deeply committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. And then I was challenging us last week to find our place in that work. So, so yes, I'm committed to that. So where do I fit in? Well, I, I gave you at least three things you could think about, right? What roles has God given you? Because when he gave you those roles, R-O-L-E-S, just to make sure we're clear about that, all right? When he gave you those roles, those help identify what he wants you to do in this world. Because each of those roles has responsibilities outlined in scripture. So, so my heart must be to find out the work that Jesus wants me to do is wrapped up in the roles and responsibilities he's given me. And the third that I said just sort of quickly at the end are the resources that he's entrusted to me. Because he gives me resources not for self-consumption, but for stewardship, right? Some of those things, uh, I think we can legitimately say, they're to be enjoyed for his glory based on 1 Timothy chapter 6, right? We don't, we're not called on to take some vow of poverty or to, uh, to live life as miserably as we can in this world. God has given us all things richly to enjoy, but it follows right on top of that with a call to us using them for God's glory and not putting our trust in riches, but in the one who gives them, right? So, so we have to always be asking ourselves, am I beginning to trust in the resources that I have? They're my security. They're my protection. They're the thing I live for, the thing I think about most, or to use the language of Jesus that I start to serve because I love them. I start to be devoted to them, right? Because I can't serve God and mammon. So, so the resources are a window into what God wants me to do and how I would carry out that work. 
So every one of us, I think, just need to regularly step back from our lives because uh, drift is real. Right? We can, we can start to, to drift because we're not, uh, we're not sitting in a neutral world. Right? There is always pressure being applied to your life that is actually moving it away from God's purposes. And you have to constantly realign and constantly reflect on whether or not you are being uh, as devoted to the mission that God has given you as he would call on you to be. So that you could say, your food is to do the will of him who sent you. Your food, the thing that sustains you, is to carry out the work that God has given you. That's that's where we should be. I'd like to take a second step in that this morning, and actually, uh, pro- they're all they're all tightly related, right? So they're not going to not be totally separate. But it actually would be, if I could, uh, to look at the way Jesus embodies for us the right kind of love for God and for people. Right, that, that he himself lived out obedience to the first and second great commandment. You know, from Matthew 22, Jesus is being asked, what's the great commandment? And Jesus says, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. Okay, quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. And then he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. So, so they're, they're, they're great in this sense that they actually are the foundation points of all that God wants from us. And, and Jesus embodied that. And again, uh, we, we have to think, right? Um, cause, Obviously, Jesus is the Son of God, eternal, right? So, so we, we have that in our head, but sometimes we just wash it right over to his human life, right? That he lived on this planet as fully human and actually exhibited exactly what it would look like to love God perfectly, and to love our neighbor perfectly, right? He, he actually lived it in a way that demonstrated for us how we should live, right? It, it wasn't an abstraction. It was actually the concrete expression of, of what I would call the proper affections controlling his life, right? So, so I'm doing a little bit of pre-work before we start to dive into the text. But when I talk about affections, I'm using it in, in a way that would probably be most like, say, Jonathan Edwards, which talked about the inclination of our heart or the disinclination of our heart. All right? So if we, if we have right affections, they incline us toward God and disincline us toward evil. I mean, and that's what Jesus is saying, John, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, right? You cannot serve two 
Masters, for you will love the one and hate the other. You'll be inclined toward one and disinclined toward the other. That's why the very next line in that says, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Okay, so it's not just talking about feelings. It's talking about the inclination of your heart, your the seat of your personality, right? Is your heart bent toward God and away from sin? Are you inclined toward the things that are right or the things that are wrong? And the godly affection would be toward the right. Ungodly affections are toward the wrong. And that's that's consistent with what we know from the Old Testament, right? If you take the concept of the fear of the Lord, which clearly would be having to do with the broad concept of where we stand toward God, right? If if we fear the Lord, we're actually drawn toward him. Right? We're not we're not running from him if we genuinely fear him. It's actually a fear that draws us toward the Lord, but you know what it also does? It, it draws us away from evil because the fear of the Lord hates evil, right? If my heart is properly oriented toward God, it will actually be inclined toward him, drawn toward him. It will be disinclined toward evil. It will actually hate evil. And, and, and that's at the center of it, right? And that's really ought to be the case because the governing affections of our heart should be the love that those two commandments require. I love God above everything else. I love him not just with a kind of disconnected love, but with everything there is in me. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor as well as a reflection of my love for God because other humans are made in God's image. And and for us to claim to love God while uh, acting in a way that's contrary toward love toward other people is is called in Scripture a, a hypocrisy. James 3, you bless God, but you curse those who are made in the likeness of God. There's an inherent contradiction there. In John chapter 4, you say you love God, but you hate the brother you can see. You're a liar, and the truth doesn't abide in you. Right? So, so those two things are properly stacked first and second. Because if you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. You, you actually can't be doing the first if you're rejecting the second, right? That's, that's the way the scriptures tie them together. So we should understand that and we should be inclined toward God because he's worthy of it. I mean, it's not just the gifts he give us, which show his kindness to produce a love for us, because that might actually be a self-centered love. I mean, there, there are lots of religious people that express some kind of love for some deity who has blessed them, right? They, they are the, they're the recipients of his kindness 
And because of that, they express a love toward him. But when the perceived kindness disappears, all of a sudden they don't love God some more. Right? They're willing to sit around the Thanksgiving table and thank God for all the blessings they have and how much they love God. And within a year, they get diagnosed with cancer or they lose someone that they care about. And all of a sudden, their Thanksgiving's gone. So who did they really love? Did they love the giver only because of the gifts? Or did they love God because he's glorious and worthy to be loved? So if our love for God is tied to the strings of what he gives us, then it's really being defined by us. That's why it stalls when it gets to the cross of our lives. Right? Jesus was able to go right through the cross because he actually loved the Father. And he was willing to endure this out of love for God. Now, that's what I want to show you. Look at John chapter 14 and look at verse 31. Jesus says, John 14, 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So in the context, this is the night of his betrayal, the night before his crucifixion. He actually tells you what's coming, right? That's Look at verse 29. Now, I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. So he's, he's been talking about his upcoming death and his departure. Look at it said in the context of an attack of Satan upon him. Verse 30, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me, but I'm, but so that the world will know that I love the father. I'm going to do exactly as the father commanded. And that command is tied to his death on the cross. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 17. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So the thing that the father has willed for the son to do and the son has come to fulfill that will culminates in his death on the cross. And Jesus does it because he wants the world to know that he loves the father. Right? So that means the reason he went to the cross was because he loves the Father. And it doesn't mean he doesn't love the world. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Okay, what I'm trying to get us to see is that the deepest love that drove Jesus to the cross was his love for the Father. He came to do the Father's will, and because he loved the Father, he was going to do exactly what the Father commanded. He was going to die as the sacrifice for sinners because that was the father's plan to provide redemption. And the son came to do the will of the father because he loves the father. He loves him, is going to lay down his life for sinners in that regard. 
And I think we could unpack it here in the Gospel of John in a few ways that Jesus has this kind of love for the Father. I, I've already actually sort of uh, laid the groundwork in what I was just saying about coming to do the Father's will, but at least one aspect of Jesus' love, it was his desire to please the Father. Right? He, because he loved the Father, he wanted to do what was pleasing in the Father's sight. His food was to do the will of him who sent. He came uh, to do that will. Chapter 5, verse 30, talks about coming to do the Father's will, 638. Because there's really only two options. Are you going to please self or please God? And, and Christ had as his great ambition to be pleasing to his Father, to do the thing that the Father wanted done, even if it meant extraordinary self-sacrifice. Because right? you have to, I mean, the reason Jesus is such a perfect example of this is because it is actually a constant level of sacrifice on his part, humility to become human, to bear the indignities of human life in a sin-cursed world, to feel all of the sinless infirmities of humanity, and to do so in the face of rejection. I mean, this same book starts with he came to his own, his own did not receive him. We find him rejected by his family in this book. We find him rejected by crowds and by leaders. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't marching down the pathway getting all accolades. He was enduring contradiction of sinners against himself, sustained by his desire to please the Father by doing his will. Says in the book of Hebrews, quoting from the Psalms, it's written in the book of the law that I have come to do your will, O God. I mean, Jesus lived a life for the pleasure of his Father. And, and I'm pounding it because I, I think just on the surface level, that, that is so out of step with the way that, that contemporary human theorizing is. Your chief duty is to please yourself. Find your happiness. Find who you are and, and find the way that a life that's satisfying to you. Right? Because essentially, we're in a world that has no overarching narrative that would hold it together. We're in a world that has been so fractured and fragmented in terms of a view of understanding what it's all about because there's no God at the center of it. Everybody becomes their own sort of deity, creating their own world and, and trying to create their own uh, heaven. So what do I want my life to be and what will make me happy and how will I be fulfilled? Everything is really either overtly or then sprinkled in Christian dust and covertly sold as a life to please yourself. How can you be happy? 
And at some point, we have to see how much that wars against what Jesus was doing in not coming to serve himself, right? But to serve others. Living his life for the benefit of the glory of God and others was because his chief desire was to honor God and please him. And, and I know that there's a, uh, there's a, a very important distinction we have to make, right? Between trying to win the favor of God as if if we're good enough, we, we sort of win his pleasure. That means we're saved. And recognizing that that is hopeless because we have nothing to offer to God to win his favor. But recognizing that once we've come to understand the promises of God for those who trust in Jesus Christ mean we are welcomed into his family and were made his children and have received his favor, right? There's a whole difference between a works-based system that's trying to earn the favor of God and a faith-based system which has received the gift of God's favor in Christ. I, my eternal destiny does not hang on me somehow earning God's favor. My eternal destiny hangs on the fact that the father was fully pleased with the son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that my hope is wrapped up in him. I've, I've confessed my sin and called on the name of Jesus Christ and he's promised to be my righteousness. He's promised to be my advocate. When my case comes up before God at the judgment, it's not going to be based on the merits or demerits of David Dorn. It's going to be based on the merits of Jesus Christ. And there are no demerits there. Jesus doesn't have a balancing scale. He has perfect righteousness, and my hope is in him. We cannot, we cannot confuse the difference there. But here's what I'm saying, is that since Jesus did that for me, boy, I want to live my life to honor him, to have him be pleased with the expression of my love for him, my desire to see him glorified, my desire to see his name exalted in this earth. I mean, there's something fundamentally, radically wrong if I can just say what I just said to you, that when my case gets put before the courtroom of God, I'm going to hear your mind. Christ is going to go, this is my brother that he died for me, his righteousness is mine. There's something fundamentally, radically wrong if I look to that and then go, okay, so whenever that shows up, I'll be glad to have that. But right now I'm gonna sort of have some fun. I'm glad when we get to court, Jesus, you're on my side, but right now I'm gonna sort of have a blast here. That means I get heaven and this. 
I can do whatever I want now. I mean, you, anybody with a brain would go, there's something seriously wrong with that. I mean, th- we know it on a human plane, right? I mean, if you're, if you're on a battlefield or you're in a shop and someone's threatening your life and someone dives in the way to, to die for you, you know you'd be thinking, I want to honor that person. I want to show my regard for that person. I'm going to make this life worth something as an expression of thanks to that person. You wouldn't go, what an idiot. He died in my place. Oh, well, I guess I get to live some more. Yet sometimes we've, we've so twisted the gospel that we exclude from love for God a desire to please him. And we don't do that in any other relationship. I mean, if you love your spouse, you seek their pleasure. If you love your kids, you seek what pleases them. Doesn't mean you do everything that they want you to do because you know sometimes that's not actually loving. But your heart is a desire to see them understand how much they mean to you. And that's, that's, that's what drove Jesus's life. Every person who saw him knew that the person who mattered most to him was his father. Even to the point of having it seem at times like, uh, like odd for us. Sticking in the temple for three days instead of being with his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph. Being, being, being in a room full of people who are listening to his teaching and someone says, your mom and your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus says, who, who are my mother and my brothers? It's the one who does the will of God. I mean, he, he basically was saying, listen, it's, it's, the, the, it's my father, my heavenly father, which holds the highest priority in my life. My desire is to do what's pleasing to him. I think as well, we talk about him delighting in fellowship with God. Look at 1510. Look what he says about his, uh, his relationship to the Father's love, if I'd put it this way, all right? If you keep my commandments, 1510, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. And over in chapter 17, look at verses 20 to 22. 1720, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
I, I've preached this before, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and unpack the whole thing. I think sometimes people like to pop into this and make it sort of like a a judicial, non-experiential kind of love that's going on here. The problem I've always had with that is that Jesus says this love can be seen. Right? This would be true among them like it is between us so that the world may know. So there has to be some element in which this penetrates into existence. So the love there is not just like an objective, non-experiential standing. The unity is not some non-experiential, positional unity. It's actually something that might be seen and observed in their relationship. And Jesus is saying that his relationship with the Father is one marked by communion and fellowship, right? He abides in the Father's love. That's why you can see him throughout the Gospels, right? He is constantly talking to his Father, even to the point of like Luke 6 says, he goes out into the mountain and spends an entire night in prayer talking to his Father. And you know, it's fascinating. You think about it. He had nothing to confess there. Right, you and I could spend a whole night confessing our sins. Jesus had none. Right, his prayer life was one of communicating his heart and his desire, his burdens. I think in that particular context, he's asking for wisdom because he's going to come down the hill and select the 12. Right, but, but he talked with his father. We know clearly from, uh, from the Gospels, even the Gospel of John, that he listened to his father. And as I said last week, some of that listening transcends what we can do because he was a prophet. But he also puts it right alongside of believing his words. Right, so there was a part of listening for Jesus which was soaking in the word of God. And, and that's tied to the third, talking, listening, worshiping, his custom. Think about this. This is the son of God incarnate. His custom was every Sabbath day to go into the synagogue so he could participate with the people there in reading of the scriptures, praying, and, and being taught. Right? I mean, that, that was his custom. Every week on the seventh day of the week, he went into the synagogue to assemble with those who wanted to hear from God's word, who wanted to sing psalms of praise to God and pray. And then eventually, as he started his public ministry, he began to read and speak about the things in there. And he was so familiar with it that someone could hand him the scroll and he could get to the part that he could say, this is being fulfilled today. There are no chapter verses, right? He wasn't saying, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. He was unrolling the scroll. He was so familiar with the word because he had been listening to it, incorporated into his heart, his mind. It shaped the way he thought because he wanted fellowship with his father and you find God through his word. He reveals himself through his word and Jesus had a heart to, to want to fellowship with his father by listening to what the father had said and talking to the father about it. 
right? That's, that's, that's the kind of heart for fellowship that he had. He wanted God. And he actually could turn and say to the people of his day that, that, that they should search the scriptures because these are what speak of me. Right? So here's what Jesus says to us. We go to the word because we want to understand God. Right? We're not just picking up the Bible like we're picking up some, some self-help book. Hey, I'm going to go to the Bible because it's got a bunch of little, uh, you know, fancy things to tell me about how I should live. It's actually, it reveals to us God. We behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, right? So, so if we have a kind of love like Jesus have, it not only desires to please him, but, but it is genuinely delighting in the fellowship that God has promised to us in his word. Do we come to the word because it helps us know the God who, who, who loves us? We want, we want to draw into fellowship with him. Do we come to worship because we want to know God, to trust him more, to love him more? Right? I mean, is that why we gather as his people? Is, is that what compels us to make it our custom on the first day of the week to come into his presence so that we might hear from him, so that we might speak to him, so that we might worship him? Jesus delighted in that kind of fellowship with the Father. But also in the text we started with this morning was that he was devoted to obedience. We looked at 1431. Let me ask you to go a little bit earlier in that chapter to see the connection here between love and obedience. We read 1431. I'm going to do this so the world will know I love the Father. All right, so look what Jesus says to his disciples in 1415. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Drop down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, but the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Do you see the connection here that Jesus makes? And this is really crucial, right? I mean, uh, desire to please God, delight in fellowship with God, but also if we love like Jesus loved the Father, then we will be devoted to obedience. And Jesus anchors, he says about himself, 1431, so the world will know that I love the Father, I'm going to do as he commanded. That's the obedience. And, and that's why Jesus doesn't hesitate to say to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. In fact, 
The one who loves me will keep my word. The one who does not keep my word does not love me. I mean, that those are so tied together as an expression of love that, that, that uh, Jesus isn't hesitant to tie those two together. And that's because biblically love is defined in more objective terms than subjective terms. And our culture tends to treat it as uh, subjective in the sense of sort of fuzzy feeling, but also subjective as in love is defined by the subject of the love rather than the object of the love. Right? That, that if, if I say I love you, then that settles it. Versus whether or not that love actually looks like love to the one receiving it. Right? Cause, cause we've privatized and personalized love in such a way that it's more about how we feel than the choices that we're making. And consistently in scripture, the, the reality of it is, is that the love is actually a choice to seek the good of the object, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? This was the love of Christ that he laid down his life for us. Or God's love is that he sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. That's 1 John 4, 9 that he might be the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John 4.10, right? That love is described in scripture as a, a, a pursuit of good for the person. And, and, and that's what Jesus, I think, doesn't hesitate to say, if, if you love, it actually will be demonstrated through obedience, because to say you love God and disregard what matters to him, I mean, that's why he's given us commands. <laughs> These things matter to God. He's helping us understand what's truly valuable. He's helping us understand what's right versus what's wrong. He's, he's telling us how he wants us to show our love for him for us to say, I love you, God, while I walk away from his commands is, is like, really? It's actually going the opposite direction, which can only be propelled by a love for self. Because obedience proves both the sincerity and purity of professed love. Right, so if I say I love, the proof of the sincerity of that is in the actions that flow out of it. You know, Jesus warned, quoting Isaiah, about people who draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and he ties it exactly to the choices they're making. They have the commands of God, and they're disregarding him. Well, they say they love me, but their heart actually is far from me, right? I mean, if I said to you, I love broccoli, the sincerity of that claim would probably show up that I either eat it, which isn't going to happen. That's the, that's the tree one, right? Okay, I got to make sure I get it narrowed in, right? If you never saw me eat it, 
You never saw me grow it, never saw me serve it, never heard me talk about it. Right? I mean, I say, oh, I love broccoli, and it is absolutely absent from my life. Don't eat it, don't cook it, don't grow it, don't talk about it. It's never on the radar. Do you think I, you'd believe that I really love broccoli? Right? You'd be going, well, every choice in his life is contradictory to that. He can say that, but, but there's no evidence of that. And that's, that's the point. If we say that we love God, and then we disregard him, we dishonor him. We show no interest in what matters to him. We simply live the way we want to live with him excluded. We'd go, I'm not sure that's love for God. And we'd be right because we'd hear the words of Jesus. This people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But it also, it also proves the purity of our professed love, right? Because the thing that we've lost in our day is that sinners can love wrongly. Do you realize it's possible to love the wrong thing? Right? Like loving broccoli. I mean, that, that, no, just kidding. Just kidding. It's possible for you to love something which is, is, wrong. I mean, you could love your sin. Right? You, you could love something that's not worthy of it, even if it's okay. I mean, is, I know sometimes there's debate about it, but is money inherently evil? I don't take the position it is. The love of money is the root of all evil. Right? So money isn't inherently evil, but if you actually start to love it more than God, it's now become a sinful love. This is, hang on, okay? Because I'm just, I'm just requoting Jesus here. But if there is any human on this planet that you love more than Jesus, that's a problem because Jesus said he has to be first and he could describe it in terms of love and hate. If there's anyone on this planet that you would abandon Jesus for, right? If it comes down to it, you've got to pick Jesus or that person and you abandon Jesus there's something sinful about that love. It's, it's a sinful love. Right? Jesus is first. And sometimes our love can be not only of the wrong thing, but it could be in the wrong way. We love something too much because we love it more than Jesus. Or possibly we love something that should have a supreme place in our heart and we love it quite coldly. We love it too little. But the reality of it is 
the test of how much we love and whether we love the right thing has to be, if I could put it this way, objectified through our obedience to God's word. If I say I love him and I don't do what he says, there's a problem. If I love the thing he tells me I can't love, there's a problem. If my heart is cold toward the thing that he says I should be fervent in my love, there's a problem. Right? It's not fuzzy. It actually becomes pretty clear when we come down to what God has said. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate, not just through his teaching, but from the very way he lived. Nothing was more important to him than his heavenly father, even his earthly mother, even his brothers. Right? Nothing Nothing that the father said he should reject was he willing to love. Everything that the father says is outside of the boundaries of true love. Jesus kept them outside. Everything that the father said you ought to love with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus loved. Jesus lived that out perfectly. And it's important for us to reflect on this deeply because we live in a day where love for God has been sentimentalized and and often is about more how we feel than actually how we obey. Right, I'm going to tip my hand on age, but these were the ones that fell, right? I mean, way back, this sort of past or the mainstream in the culture with phrases like, Love never means having to say you're sorry. Really. So if I love God, I never have to say sorry. Because it's really about me and how I feel. How could a love that feels so right ever be wrong? Well, because it's actually not love as God declared it to be. Love is love. Really. I mean, I won't do it because I think it would be gross to do in this kind of an audience. But every one of us in here can think of categories where people call it love and we call it sick. Right? Love isn't just love. The reality of it is there has to be some basis for evaluating that, some ground on which the reality of it being love is. And you and I have got to come to grips with the fact that we actually can have that cultural kind of nonsense filter into uh, watered-down pop Christianity, right, that crafts love for God in romantic terms, creates entire entire genres of worship that are, are often not much more than God is my girlfriend. Because that's the kind of love it stirs up, is how I feel about him. And, and that doesn't pass the muster of 
like the kind of message in Scripture that your love for God sometimes means you are walking an incredibly painful, difficult path that might cost you everything in this world. But you're sustained in it because you love God. Right? Because he loved you and loved you to the point of death on the cross in his son. So, so there's a reason these are called the first and second great commandments. They establish the proper priority in our affections. God first, then everybody else. And they set the boundary for how we live, obedient to God and doing no harm to our neighbor, to use the language of Romans 13.10. So, so how do we cultivate a heart of love like Christ had for his father? Well, I think, I think we start by filling our heart with an ever-increasing understanding of his love for us. We saw it in John 17 that the son was captivated by the love of his father for him. The verse we didn't look at was the son, Jesus, talking about a love which he had with the father before the world began. The son came into this world because of his love with the father. So we have to fill our hearts with an overwhelming, deepening depth, depth, breadth, height of the love of God. Because once the love of Christ constrains us, then we'll live for him who died for us. Because we understand that we love because he first loved us. We have to focus our hearts on the love of God. I think we have to deepen our vision of his glory because there's a kind of love that flows out from the worthiness of God, right? We, we actually have a deepening appreciation of how glorious God is. We're not setting a manipulative standard on God that says, well, I'll love you if you give me what I want, right? We, we like to play that game. Well, Lord, if you know, I need I need some help, and if you give me some help, I'll love you. Right now, I think when God does graciously give to us, we love Him more. But it should start with the fact that He's glorious. We love Him for Him, not just what He gives us, because we can trust Him. We love Him, and we need to get to know Him better and then cultivate our walk with him. Jesus rested in the assurance of his father's love. Everybody else, everybody else was bailing on him. Everyone else was betraying him. Everyone else was trying to crucify him. But he could say, my father loves me because I lay down my life. And I'm laying down my life because I love my father, right? He was anchored in that. And if we're going to live a Christ-like life, it has to be wrapped up in that love for God, which is the work of God in our soul. Other than that, we'll like to negotiate with his commandments. We'll live life saying, well, show me where it's wrong. 
rather than what does my father take pleasure in? How can I please my Lord? And, and there's radically different approaches, right? If the one is I'm free to do whatever I want unless you show me, God says no. And another one that says, I want to find and do the will of my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, please help us to love you with a love that reflects the love of Christ. And we know that that is a deep, deep, faithful, dedicated love. That he would be a living sacrifice in every aspect of his lives and then make the ultimate sacrifice in giving himself up on the cross because he loved us. But please help us not to miss this or to to misunderstand it because we're letting the culture around us shape our definition and understanding of love. Because the battle for our heart is the most important fight going on. And we want to love you in a way that brings you honor and glory. As a congregation, I hope it's our prayer that we would never leave our first love, but that we might be marked by hearts that are captivated by your love and therefore brought into submission to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.